Welcome to Brain Health 365, the podcast focusing on innovative, holistic, and integrative approaches to brain health and healthy aging. Our host, Brian Brown, a national cognitive health expert, will discuss and interview top experts covering wide-ranging topics focusing on his 10 principles for brain health. We invite you to engage and join the conversation. Welcome to the Brain Health 365 podcast the podcast that provides everything for your brain health and for you to age healthy. My name is Brian Brown, and I'm the host of the podcast. And today, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Aaron Ritter. Dr. Ritter is a geriatric psychiatrist and a behavioral neurologist uh, working at the Cleveland Clinic Lou Rubo Center for Brain Health. Uh, He's an expert in everything Alzheimer's, dementia, and healthy aging, uh, and I'm pleased to welcome my friend and colleague. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. So today we are going to really unpack a topic that is really affecting a lot of people right now, and it's really kind of a double whammy where we're seeing an increase in mental health issues, but also We know that age is the number one risk factor for Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias. And so there's this kind of duality going on that that we both see. Um, So according to uh, the Institute of Medicine, um, they found that one in five older adults are experiencing some sort of mental illness. And the impact of this mental health crisis um, on the older adults is pretty severe. We see things like depression, anxiety, stress, addiction, and other things that become really toxic to our brain's ability to to really help us age well, and it increases our risk for dementia. So, So unpack for a little bit what you see in terms of this mental health crisis that we're seeing specifically in our older aging populations. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. It's a great point, and and we know that mental health issues can start at any age, but they're more likely to appear in in late uh, our late ages, and those include both uh, neurologic diseases like dementia, but also uh, psychiatric conditions like depression and anxiety. And I, have, I have a lot. There's a lot of theories about why that happens. A, a lot of this has to do with our circumstances as we get older, our brain doesn't work as well and it's incredibly frustrating and irritating. Our lives change as we get older. We're no longer able to do the things we like to do. There's you know, work life changes, uh, the sort of securities that a lot of folks have through their whole life of, of bringing home a paycheck that may change as they retire. So there's a lot of uh, psychological factors that go into why, I th- why we think mental health issues increase as we get older. Plus, there's a lot of loss um, at risk of, of, of passing away or having somebody very close to us that you know, we may have been married to for many, many years. That, that increases. So there's a lot of, lot of stress factors that, that increase as we get older. And then in addition, the neurologic diseases that we all are at risk for after we get over the age of about 60, we're all at risk for Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. And those may also bring about um, some mental health issues as well. Alzheimer's disease is often accompanied by anxiety and, and depression and apathy. And, and so all these things can, can occur as we get older. My, my biggest 
thought about that is as we get over as we get older our, our brain's ability to be resilient to its environment yeah. resilient to the medical things that goes down in, in many different ways and so our goal is for, for young folks is is to work on that brain resiliency as early as possible and for old and for older folks that are experiencing those things to continue to to, to try to maintain a, a healthy and resilient brain so let's kind of uh one by one talk about a few of these type of mental health disorders that we see so um you touched on some briefly so let's talk about um um, some of the stressors that we see as as people get older. Um, you talked about loss, um, potential loss, and that that becomes this this stressor to people. And it, it, the fear of loss, the actuality of loss, that becomes um, a, a bit of a stressful environment. Um, so, in terms of stress, uh, there's a healthy amount of stress. So let's talk about a healthy amount of stress as opposed to an abnormal or unhealthy amount of stress. Right. And when it comes to stress, I think the best advice is to listen to your body because your body really has a good gauge of how much stress is, is good for us. For example, sleep. A lot of our, our body's ability to handle, handle stress is sort of reflected in our sleep patterns. So um, if you're going to sleep really easily because you're tired and, and stressed and worn out, but then you wake up really early in the morning, that's because your body is more attenuated to the effects of, of cortisol. So if a person is having a lot of early morning awakenings or is unable to focus on, on, on reading or is unable to focus on positive things, that's a sign that our body is in an abnormal balance of stress. So I would say, listen to your, listen to your body first. Yeah. Um, and so that's important. Absolutely. And then, and so really balancing and understanding when stress is unhealthy. Again, like you said, if you're waking up or you're grinding your teeth or doing all of those kind of things, those are really signs that you have an unhealthy level of stress that really needs to be um, really attended to. Um, so how about and, and, and I'll, I just comment because they make a really good point. One of the things I, I'd say about that is a good, a low amount of stress, stress is good. Stress, you know, it keeps us paying our bills, it keeps us performing well at, at work. It, it, it keeps us, you know, maintaining the sort of speeds when we're on the highway, you know, that's a little bit of stress when, when it is a good thing, but when that gets out of whack, when that balance gets out and it becomes consuming and you're become emotionally sort of responsive to stress, that's when we see that the sort of stress balance has, has come out of, out of, out of balance. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum where we see people then start to fall into depression. Um, and, and what are some of the signs and symptoms that people are more prone to depression where it can take them? Because we know that depression then has uh, an ability to make things out of whack and out of balance as well. Yeah, that's a really good question. And there are certain symptoms that come with depression, but in general, it's a really about a mood state. It's about feeling low and down and having no energy to do things and not enjoying things we you know, used to do. There's each, each one of us has things that we enjoy doing that gets us in a positive mood. Maybe it's listening to a favorite song or, or watching a, a favorite television program. And when, when those things that usually boost our mood are no longer boosting our mood or, or if we feel down and, and sad and blue and can, can cry easily, 
those are signs, those are signs of depression. And, and, and leading back to the comment about stress, I think it's really important. We think that depression may have an, is an ab, adaptive re, response to being overly stressed or having yeah. too much stress in our lives. And it's, it's really related to uh, the amount of cortisol our body produces, the amount of receptors our brain is producing. So when we switch over into this mood state where we're down all the time and can cry easily and not finding an enjoyment in life, we kind of have to think about that this may be a depressive episode. Why is, why is sometimes mental health um, missed by family members and even some practitioners um, in, in terms of looking at total overall general health? Why is it sometimes not picked up as easily as it should be? Well, I think historically, you know, there's, and everybody knows there's, a, there, there's historically been a stigma about uh, mental health issues. Um, there's been an artificial separation between mental health issues and, and physical issues. So we used to think that the brain was kind of disconnected from the body and we know that not to be true, that, that depression may be mediated by things like our, our home hormone levels and our stress hormone uh, levels. Uh, so I think that's part of it. I think, think third is that people just d either don't know or don't want to talk about their mood. I mean, a lot of depression is about the internal state a person is feeling. And if they're not willing to kind of share that, um, it may not be obvious. People are really good at hiding their emotions. We were trained to do this for a lot of the yeah. time. Keep those emotions in check, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think as people age, uh, it's the, uh, for some people, um, it's difficult for them to um, admit that they need help. Um, specifically in a lot of areas. And, and we both see this in terms of uh, people trying to maintain a locus of control, even though they're going through a, an Alzheimer's or dementia, dementia phase where they, where they continue to hang on and hang on and don't want anybody to know that there's some changes. And, and the same could be said about some mental health issues. They don't want to appear weak um, to anybody around them. They'll just basically shake off the blues or whatever it is. Exactly. And, and I think it's, not something we that folks have really really been encouraged to do before and it's a can be a source of shame or you know if you don't have somebody that you can trust that you can talk to i think it's really hard to to do that yeah that's 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 so true is to have people that you can trust to uh, to download this information um really really important so when you when someone comes to you as a as a neurologist and a geriatric psychiatrist, and they're presenting with some cognitive issues. They're not thinking right. Um, there may be some behavioral and some memory things and, and no one's sure what's going on. Give us a sense of how you start to tease out what is what so that you can either rule something in or rule something out. So, so how does it play out for you when people come to your office and, and start talking about these very issues? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first point is to start with that the treatments are, are completely different. Um, hmm. So if a person has uh, dementia or if a person has what, what we call depression or what we call sometimes in the past pseudo dementia, there can be a lot of overlap, but it's really important for us to get to the bottom because the treatments and the prognosis and, and the things that a person may likely experience are, are completely different. So we start by analyzing and, and assessing how 
you know, certain markers of, of brain health, and that, those can even be included in an MRI or memory testing. The memory is very complicated. A lot of what we experience as memory loss is more like brain inefficiency. So the inability to pull out those memories that we know are there or thoughts that are there or the names of that neighbor down the street that we know the name, but we just can't pull it out. That's that's a, that's a sign of brain efficiency and in, in depression and in stress and poor sleep and out of whack vitamin levels, our brains become really inefficient. In neurologic diseases like Alzheimer's disease, it's not so much an efficiency problem, but it's a storage problem. So people with neurologic disease, they don't store new memories. So they can't, they can't pull those memories out even if their life depended on it. And so that's a slightly different thing, but our tests have gotten really good at being able to kind of tease that apart. And so that's why I think it's important to get those evaluated and to do them in, in a way that's kind of done in a thoughtful manner because we can provide a lot of relief uh, and, and, and treatments that are better targeted at whether what type of memory problem a person has. So that, that's, that's a really good issue because we have gotten better over the years at looking at other chronic disease states and really have said that you need to have screening on a regular basis so that we can see what's transpiring. So again, um, hypertension, we, we, reg we have really normalized the blood pressure, you know, getting a blood pressure screening on a regular basis. We've normalized cholesterol screening because we know that, you know, uh, you know, high cholesterol, bad for the body. So we've normalized that. We've done um, not so good of a job in normalizing some of these even basic memory screenings that, um, that we administer on a regular basis um, so that we can start to look at, like you said, the sensitivity of the earliest signs of changes in, in memory or cognition to see if it's an inefficiency problem or possibly something more. Um, speak, to, speak to that in terms of um, our need to, to, to really look at the broader picture. Yeah, no, I, I, it's, a, it's a really good point. And, and I, I think the, 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 the point to make here is, is, is really the, how we can keep our brains you know, healthy over time and, and sort of like a checkup you get for your car. I think we can starting to incorporate memory screens and, and assessing for brain health because there are certain things that we can do uh, that we know throughout our entire life that will increase our odds of keeping a healthy brain through our lives. And, and those include early on with, with lifestyle changes to sort of reduce our, our uh, sugar intake, increase our physical exercise. And those are reflected in how our brain functions, especially as we get older. And memory screens and tests and, and, and brain scans often can kind of get to the bottom of that and, and say we need to change course or we need to do something different or we need to uh, approach this problem in a, in a different way. So um, I, I've seen and, and you've seen and you've been a champion of this, I know, uh, for the last uh, number of years about how, to, how, how we sort of incorporate brain health into our overall picture of, of healthy aging. Yeah, yeah, it, it's really, really important. And, and you know, both of us um, have spent our careers really championing that, that cause and, and trying to get to the, uh, to, the, to the bottom line of getting more people understanding about how that they can improve their brain health over a lifetime. 
And so, I, I would, I would want to, I mean, if you don't mind, I'd like to add something because I think this is really relevant. Yeah. And I think this, this talks about how do we change the treatments long-term for mm -hmm. diseases like Alzheimer's disease. One of the things I would say about where I'm hopeful about dementias is they have an Achilles heel, I think, I think. So a lot of the dementias are caused by the slow buildup of these proteins in the brain. And, and a lot of us have heard of these before because they're on the news a lot and they're in these commercials and things. And there's an amyloid plaques and uh, these tau tangles and these synucleins, so these proteins. And I think there's really an Achilles heel because long time before the dementia sets in, these proteins are building up in our brain. And I think that over the next 10 to 15 to 20 years, we're going to be able to develop the technologies that will be able to clear these proteins out of the brain or reduce their buildup and allow people the chance to live dementia-free lives. I mean, that's our goal. And so early detection is going to be a shift in that paradigm. If we do that now, we're more likely to, to, to identify people at a risk that can participate in, in research studies or can participate in healthy lifestyle things that we know reduce the buildup of these proteins. So I know there's a, there's a, a lot of times that we, we see, and I see a lot of patients that there's nothing I can do about this, the early, early identification. Well, there's nothing we can do about it at this moment, but we need to get in that place where we are, are doing things about it. Yeah, that, that's a proactive nature. Um, being proactive in, in really all disease states makes a big difference. And then what you're talking about is the same. If we can normalize the proactivity of, of really being brain healthy, we put ourselves in a better position uh, not being reactive at the end where we're suffering the effects of this. And so really it's a mindset, it's a lifestyle, it's, it's something to keep on top of and abreast of as research, uh, both clinical and basic research, continue to delve into um, what you just said, a world without Alzheimer's disease and, and other dementias. So really important to, to understand. So we, we know that there's a lot of times that things aren't... Um, the same, there's no equivalency. So meaning that you may see someone come in with what's known as a mixed dementia or a couple of things going on. Uh, so mental health and a dementia diagnosis and, and all of that. Um, how are you able to, um, you talked about some of the early tests to sort of um, see what fits into what category and things along those lines. But now how do you advise somebody going forward with an, a number of different things coming at them um, at the same time, do we get the mental health looked into um, this way first or, or second? Do we talk about um, getting someone on a clinical trial or, or another path um, in terms of their, their potential dementia? How do you deal with, with like, multiple things coming at you at the same time? Yeah, that's a really great point. And that's one of what I think makes this field particularly interesting is that every person's brain is completely different. I mean, it's based on our experiences, our genetics, uh, the, the sort of environment we create for our brains by the, the food we put into our, our, our body, the exercise we do, and the health of our blood vessels. So all those uh, factors play a role. So it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And that's why I, I think having a, a person-centered approach is the way to, to address this uh, problem. And what you talk about is a, is a huge issue. Is there's a lot of complexity. So the best way to handle complexity, I, I've always felt, is to break things down into their smallest parts. 
And so uh, after we kind of do a, our, our sort of baseline assessment, we, we try to break things down into simple components that can be addressed. So if there are problems with uh, the amount of cholesterol in the, that, that are accumulating in the, the blood vessels of the brain, we sort of address that problem with maybe, you know, it could be uh, diet, or it could be statin medications in appropriate people, it could be lowering uh, hemoglobin A1C levels. And then we move on to short-term memory. If the person has a short-term memory problem that it may be because they're not getting enough sleep or they may have obstructive sleep apnea or they may have Alzheimer's disease. And then we, we, we start a medicine that, that may help those symptoms. And, and so, so we tend to have this kind of approach where we break the big pieces down into little pieces that are more manageable for each patient and the family to, to approach, but it, it's complicated. And, um, you know, a lot of it goes on, 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 on preference and, and ability. And, and, you know, I think my, my preference would be uh, we try to understand where the mental health issues are coming from. I think a lot of us have all seen or, or been there ourselves or, or, or seen family members that continue to struggle with depression and, and either their symptoms aren't being adequately addressed, but a lot of times it's because their, their social psychosocial environment is not being addressed. If they're working 18 hours a day and not, not getting ahead or they, they, they're not resolving issues with family members and things like that. So I think the mental health issues, we have to know where they come from, identify what the factors that may be contributing and then and to even break that part, the mental health part down even further than we would do uh, with other issues. So, so it's a complex issue with a lot of um, parts, but we always try to break it down to the most sim simplest component that can be addressed. You said a, a word that's uh, near and dear to my heart or a phrase, which is person-centered care. Um, Oftentimes, we see the homogenization of, of folks with a lot of different disease states where a lot of practitioners will go to a cookbook model and say, well, I'm just going to do this because this is what I do in everybody. But what you said really resonates because uh, we see this in terms of uh, in the Alzheimer's and dementia world that all states of neurodegeneration, all states of the disease process are so individualized that you have to have a true person-centered care approach. Otherwise, um, the homogenization is not going to work. And so I was you know, really ecstatic to hear you use that term. Yeah, and I, and I know it's hard to find, you know, it might be hard to find providers and, and, and neurologists or that or psychiatrists that, that use that approach because, you know, in, in reality, the way the, me the medical system is sometimes organized, it's, it, it promotes the homogenous approach. And, um, you know, that can be used to some, some benefit, but if that is not enough for, for an individual, I think to sit down with family members or, or with themselves and, and to educate themselves using uh, reliable sources, primarily from the National Institute of Health, um, you can create your own uh, medical plan. You can search out uh, health coaches, you can search out personal trainers that can kind of help you uh, sort of access healthy behaviors and habits that can keep your brain healthy. I think that's important. I, I think what you just said is really important because everyone needs a team. You need a team of people to be able to, uh, to, to really enact change. And if we, we look at you, know, you who is um, an outstanding A1 provider, you can't provide everything. You know, and, and that's just the reality of the situation. So this is where the, the multidisciplinary approach of, of team members 
is really, really important in specifically looking at all of these um, mixed cases and the individualization of, of sometimes aging itself and specifically cognitive aging, that a multidisciplinary approach is, is a healthy approach where you, like what you said, enlist others, other people with some different specialties to, to really come alongside to provide better outcomes. Yeah. So let's talk about some common um, medications in the last few minutes here that we have that, that sometimes um, have uh, an effect on one, our mental health, but could also have an effect on our cognition. So uh, it's a balancing act, I know, for specifically a physician like yourself who, who is certified in both areas to, to sort of balance mental health and cognitive health, because sometimes um, there's a push-pull. So there's a lot of people who are taking a lot of uh, benzodiapines, things like the, the Xanax, the, the Valium, or the, the Ativans of the world for maybe some, some stress issues or whatever, but they sometimes aren't cognitively friendly. So give us, some, give us some words on how to sort of approach those types of uh, subject matters in, in things like that. Yeah, this is a good point. And, and the, the, the medicines you mentioned before are all part of a, a class of medications that De decrease brain activity. That's their goal. When we're anxious and stressed yeah. out, we want to turn that brain off or we want to go to sleep. We want to turn the brain off. And, and we could see how that would be helpful primarily as an as-needed basis or a, a one-off or maybe uh, if we're going through a period of time, maybe it's, it's a week or two at a time. Uh, but those medicines are not really designed to be used every day. They're not being really designed to be used as a means to, to cope with stress in our life. Um, and it's, that's easily, it's easily why it's, it's possible to become uh, tolerant of the medicines, meaning you need higher dose to achieve the same effect, or in some cases become physi physiologically dependent on those medicines. So one, the first thing I would say is you can't just stop benzodiazepines cold turkey. It's a little bit like Stopping alcohol cold turkey, there, there are repercussions to that. And some of them yeah. can be very scary. So before anybody stops any benzodiazepines, it's be very careful to check in with your the person who's prescribing them. Um, so number one, and number two, they can't be mixed with things like alcohol very well. Uh, they can't be mixed with other medications. So they need to be taken very carefully. And, and people with cognitive impairment shouldn't be managing their own medications, especially benzodiazepines. Um, and so, you know, there is some evidence to say that these medicines, if they're taken chronically and, and, and repeatedly, that they have a, a negative effect on, on brain function. We still don't quite understand the, the sort of uh, repercussions of that. Um, but it, it, it is important to understand if you are taking these medicines regularly or if you're finding that you're becoming very reliant on them, that that there may be better options and it'd be important to talk to, the, to your doctor about what those options could, could be. Excellent advice, because I know a lot of people um, are stuck in that situation where they, they need them, but they become um, really um, become more dependent on them and, and it has affected their cognition. So when we do memory screenings on them and they have this laundry list of these benzodiazepines on there and they're not performing as well as they want to, and it could be a, a medication mind fog situation as opposed to a cognitive issue. And so again, like you said, 
go to the practitioner that prescribed them, have a really good conversation because um, there's a lot uh, at stake here in terms of uh, everything from cognition to fall risk to just a number of different things. Yeah, and, and don't be ashamed about it. I mean, these medicines are often have often historically been prescribed for people in, in no fault of their own. And, and it's just, it's important to have an open, honest conversation uh, about them and, and maybe ways to, to use different, different medications. Now, how about the, the class of drugs like statins, where people are taking the, uh, taking the Lipitors of the world and uh, the Zocors of the world and, and uh, the Crestors of the world and things along those lines, that they have some, some chronic cardiac issues or some other issues that are, that are at play here? And how do they play into the world of cognition and, and, and aging? Yeah, that's a really good question, and and that's an that's a question that's not fully answered. But I would start by saying that the statins are incredibly beneficial for the blood health of the blood vessels, and our brain is filled with blood vessels, both small and large, that over time become hardened by the effects of cholesterol building up on the cell walls. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of people, statins are life saving in terms of keeping those blood vessels healthy. There's a lot of negative press about statins because some statins don't agree with folks. And so it's important that we separate the sort of side effects from the overall class effects of, of statins. Right now, there's, there's no clear evidence to say that statins um, damage brain cells or cause cognitive impairment or associated with dementia. Now, there are reports of people that take statins that have side effects, including cognitive symptoms, but that's not to say that that side effect is the effect of the class of the medicine. In, over, in general, statins are, are beneficial. It's just important that, the, that you find this, if you're prescribed a statin or you need a statin, that you find one that, that agrees with you and doesn't cause side effects and um, and, and have again have that conversation about um, what may be the safe statins. But I know there's a lot of misinformation around statin medications themselves. That that's that's wonderful information. That's one of the things that we really wanted to, to clear up here in terms of of looking at your total health um, in as you age and making sure that you're making great decisions um, uh, with your practitioner about your overall long-term health and your, your ability to age well over time. So um, any parting advice, Dr. Ritter, in terms of looking at uh, this aging continuum with mental health and cognitive uh, health um, that you want to give our audience right now? Yeah, I'd say one thing, and that I think for me, the takeaway point is of mental health issues like depression and anxiety and insomnia, um, those are incredibly common symptoms. And a lot of people, millions of, of Americans and millions of people worldwide experience these common symptoms, but they're not normal. And so it's not normal for the brain not to sleep at night. It's not normal to be stressed and sad or to be worried about every little thing. It's not normal to have uh, maybe these abnormal perceptions that aren't really there, what we call hallucinations or delusions. And there's a lot of suffering associated with these uh, common, uh, common symptoms, but they're not normal. And if they do emerge, that it would be important uh, to get those evaluated and, and 
checked out so we can one know where they're coming from and two uh, help uh, treat the symptoms and, and relieve some of the suffering that goes along with these symptoms. That's that's very great advice. And uh, as always, we'd like to, to thank Dr. Aaron Ritter of the Cleveland Clinic Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health for being our guest. And we look forward to having you again as a future guest on, on the podcast. And to all our listeners, we look forward to having you on our next episode. So in good cognitive health, I am signing off. This is Brian Brown, your host. Thank you for joining us. We encourage listener engagement and invite you to submit your brain health questions to us at questions at brainhealth365.com. Be sure to follow us on socials and download Brain Health 365 from wherever you get your podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes. Join the conversation.